Thank you so much for that fine introduction. I'll just get myself, oh my. I'm always so pleased when people are oh, willing and interested in hearing my story. And to be here among so many who appreciate and admire my husband, Charlie Russell. Um, we've had quite a summer, haven't we? 1935, why, Will Rogers died this summer. I'm sure you've heard of that. And I can't think of Will Rogers that I don't think about the time we met him on our first trip to New York City. Now, Will was trying to get started in vaudeville, and he used to tell it this way. He said he was trying to sell a few stories and a few rope tricks. Charlie was trying to sell a few paintings. But he had that wrong. I was trying to sell a few paintings. <laughs> Charlie was trying not to get lost in New York City. Will Rogers gone this year, and Phil Goodwin too. And with the passing of these men, the people who understood the West and could portray it and express it for all of us, there never will be another generation like them. And we are blessed with the, the gifts that they left us, the stories and the art. And who would have thought a girl, coming from where I came from, would end up trotting in double harness with Charles M. Russell. <laughs> and that we'd work together to leave this legacy of art and stories. <sighs> well, I know people criticize me for charging like I do for Charlie's work. With this depression and all, now I must tell you that here's how I look at it. Economic times will change, they always do. But there never will be any more Russell art. So if you want it, you need to pay for it. <laughs> We've already looked it up, yeah. <laughs> now, Will Rogers would appreciate my stand on this. Will used to tell this story on Charlie, that Charlie would make a painting, sell it for a few dollars if he could, and if he couldn't, he would put it over the bar for a round of drinks for himself and his friends. Then Charlie got married. <laughs> he got not only a wife, but a manager. Nancy said, you paint these things and I will attend to the distribution end of the enterprise. And then Will would say, now every story needs a moral. And the moral of this one is, if you're going to paint, know what you're painting about. And if you're going to marry, marry somebody who can manage you right. <laughs> manager probably one of the kinder things I've been called. <laughs> Insatiable Nancy. Now that's what Mr. Loomis called me after <clears throat> I sold a painting in California that year for the highest price ever paid to a living artist. Nancy the robber. Now that's what Charlie's less charitable friends called me because they thought that I robbed them of his time and robbed people of their money by charging like I did for Charlie's work. But the way I looked at that is Charlie's friends couldn't afford his work and he couldn't afford to be kept from making it for those who could. Now that's just good business. <laughs> but a woman practicing good business gets called an awful lot of unflattering things. Heavens, I didn't know anything about art when I met Charlie, but I knew he did, and I knew he could be something special if we could just figure out how to do it. Do you ever think about fate? Uh, about one thing happening, and then another thing happens, and another, and they all have to sort of line up? Well, 
When Charlie came west, he was following his dream. He'd grown up listening to stories of, of the west and the buffalo herds and the mountain men, and he wanted to see it before it was gone. It was passing fairly quickly, and it was his dream to see it. I was brought west by my stepfather, and he left my mother, my stepsister, and me and Helena while he went off to seek his fortune, and after my mother died, he came back and took my stepsister and left me there in the streets. So what were my dreams? I dreamed of a hot meal. I dreamed about shoes without holes in them. And I dreamed that tomorrow would be better than today. But here's how I look at that story now. If my stepfather hadn't brought us all out here from Kentucky, and if he hadn't left me behind when my mother died, and if some very nice people over in Cascade hadn't needed some help around the house with their children and chores and such, I never would have met Charlie Russell. The Roberts were good friends of this cowboy artist, Charlie Russell. Now, he was coming for dinner one time, and uh, Mr. Roberts said to me, Nancy, I want you to understand the kind of work that this cowboy artist does. He showed me a little folio of sketches that he'd put together to help promote Charlie. Well, I took a look at those pictures, and they looked like the illustrations I'd seen in magazines and, and newspapers, <sighs> things I'd seen in the streets of Cascade and Helena, my own self, cowboys shooting up the air and horses racing through town and dust and dirt, and I thought this Charlie Russell must be some sort of a dirty old cowboy, and I don't even know if I wanted to meet him. <laughs> Mr. Roberts said if I wanted to see some other art, I could go down to the hardware store, and I thought it was strange that art would be in the hardware store, but he said that's where people in Montana would be looking for it. <laughs> <sighs> well, the night Charlie came for dinner now. Oh, I've told this story so many times, but it happened just like I told it. I was standing in the kitchen with a plate of sliced ham, and uh, I heard boots on the porch boards, and, and then the kitchen door flew open, and Mr. Roberts called out to his wife, Leela, Charlie's here. And there he stood. He was no dirty cowboy. He had about the kindest blue eyes I had ever seen, and his hands, why, he had the hands of an artist. I don't know how he accomplished any cowboy and work with those hands. And, he walked over to the corner of the kitchen and poured some water in the basin to wash up for supper. And I was still standing there with that am. When he was drying his face off now, he peeked around the towel and he winked at me. Well, I was smitten. And all through dinner now, he kept us entertained with stories and uh, came calling after that. Now, you must understand, my experience with men is rude men who treat women poorly, and nobody cared what I thought. But Charlie did. We would walk by the river or sit in the Roberts parlor, and he'd say, Nancy, what do you want from your life? Well, what did I know to want from my life? I'm a woman, a, a marriage, and a family. What did I want from my life? Well, I wanted to not be hungry ever again. And I wanted to learn to set a proper table so that I could entertain guests sometime in my life if that should ever occur. And, and I wanted to learn to speak better English. At the time, I, I, I embarrassed everyone and myself. 
when I opened my mouth. I, people said it would be a very poor match. Charlie Russell, coming and going free and easy all those years in Montana, what sort of a husband would he make? And uh, me, coming from Kentucky and having no, no education to speak of, and well, my health wasn't very good. The doctor there in Cascade said, Charlie, don't you marry that Cooper girl. She'll be dead in three years. <laughs> well, what people didn't know about Charlie is the reason he didn't give his word very often is because he knew he'd have to keep it. So when he gave his word to me, it was September of 1896. Now we were married in the Roberts parlor, and I never doubted he would be true to me. I, I never questioned him. Well, I questioned his wisdom from time to time. <laughs> but I never, never looked back. Neither of us did. Charlie liked to talk about his cowboying days. And he referred to marriage as being necked. Now, that's where you tie a rope around the neck of a wild horse and then tie the other end to the neck of a tame horse. And the tame horse teaches the wild horse some manners. That's the only way to hold a bunch quitter, he'd say. <laughs> I don't know which one of us he thought might quit the bunch, <laughs> but neither of us ever did. And he told a friend he hoped the rope would never choke or break. We came from such different places. Charlie, growing up in St. Louis with a large, prosperous family and, and having everything he needed and wanted. And don't you kid yourself, when he got good and hungry and Tired of being out there on the prairie, he went home. I was born on a tobacco farm in Kentucky. And my father left before I, I was born. And, and I lived with my mother and grandparents. My grandmother didn't like having another mouth to feed. So I worked in the tobacco fields from about the time I was old enough to know what I could be doing to help. I remember, though, I remember those summer nights after the harvest was in, and Grandpa would load up that wagon with all the sides attached, and off he would go to sell that harvest. And if the prices were high and the market was good now, he'd come back and that wagon had supplies for the next year, shoes and clothes for us all, and sometimes little treats. But when the market was low and, and the prices no good, why? He would come back, and there were no treats, to be sure, but we would just have to make do for the coming year with whatever we already had. Perhaps it's just as well I didn't go to school too much. I, I looked pretty shabby in those days. Well, now, there we were married, living in Cascade. The first thing we did to advance Charlie's career was move to Great Falls, a city of a very different city. And um, the first person who came to visit us was Mr. Schatzlein from Schatzlein's Hardware over in Butte. He wanted to buy some more paints to sell in his hardware store. And he said, Charlie, you ought to raise your prices. I sold one painting from the bunch that I bought from you last time for as much as I paid you for the whole bunch. Your work is worth it. Well, Charlie Russell never cared what happened to his paintings after he made them. He just wanted to paint. But I would have been blind not to see the opportunity. There comes a time in your life when you know what you're supposed to be doing. And right then and there, I knew I was supposed to be helping my husband. So the first opportunity I had, I stepped in. 
Charlie had made a little, uh, little watercolor for the mayor's wife, and I asked if I could deliver it. Now, Nancy, he said, don't you ask for more than $25 or she won't take it. When the mayor's wife saw this little painting, she was thrilled. She said, how much? $35, I said. Wait right here, I'll get you a check. When Charlie saw that check, I think he was as happy as he was 25 years later when Doheny paid 30000 for a commission. As time went on, I think he just pretended to be appalled at the way I ran our business. The worst fight we ever had is when I took $75 for a canvas he said he'd take five for. Well then, I don't recall, 1900 it was, we had been renting there in Great Falls, but in 1900 we built our house, the first roof over my head that didn't belong to somebody else. And it had a formal dining room and a parlor, a kitchen and a pantry, and upstairs there were four bedrooms and a water closet, and the eternal fragrance of turpentine. <laughs> Where was Charlie going to paint? Besides the front parlor. He'd always said he wanted a studio like the cabin he'd spent his first two years in Montana with Jake Hoover. He wanted a studio built after the, that cabin. Well, we ordered the logs and they came to our fine and proper little neighborhood there in, in Great Falls. Up the street they came on a flatbed in a span of draft horses pulling them and well, that cabin started going up, got the walls about this high, and a neighbor said, Charlie Russell, what are you building there, a corral? <laughs> I don't know what came over Charlie Russell, but he disowned the project right then and there. And Mr. Calvert, a friend of ours, and the man who built our house, we, the two of us finished that project. And then I waited to see if Charlie would ever use it. And one night our neighbor, Mr. Trigg, came over. Charlie, I've been looking at that chimney from the outside. I wonder what the fireplace looks like inside. Is it all right if we go in and look? Well, I was doing the supper dishes and holding my breath. And sure enough, about 20 minutes later, Charlie came back. Oh, Nancy, he said, that cabin will do just fine. I can put all my materials in there, all my paint and supplies and my collections, and I can cook campfire suppers over that fireplace and the bunch can come and visit and we can tell stories <sighs> and true to his vision that night that's exactly what happened the bunch came to visit more often than I would have uh, imagined or appreciated <laughs> but nothing made Charlie happier there he was in that cabin, and he would cook up suppers now Charlie wasn't the best cook in the world and if anyone ever asked for seconds he was thrilled, and then they'd talk to the wee hours of the morning. Imagine me sitting in that house, listening to the waves of laughter that came from that cabin. In the early hours of the morning, someone might stumble into the house and look for a place to sleep. The most talented artist in the West, and, and that's all he ever wanted to do, was visit with his friends and tell stories. Well, now, all the people who'd been coming through Great Falls been saying to Charlie over and over, you need to go to New York. 
New York is where the publishers are. New York is where all of the galleries are. That's where the contracts and the work is. Well, Charlie didn't like anything new. He liked things to stay the same. And Well, in 1903, when they were preparing for the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition the next year, I thought, who better than Charlie Russell to have his art represented in what was to be the finest collection of American art ever brought together at that exhibition. So we headed off to St. Louis so that I could present these paintings and I figured we were halfway to New York and I was determined to go the rest of the way. Now my definition of determined is different from Charlie's. <laughs> off we went to New York City. Oh, what a place that was. And I had to agree. As we got closer and closer to the city itself and I saw all those tall buildings, I can't imagine why Manhattan Island didn't just sink under the weight. And when we got to the train station, now I wanted to take one of those new motor cars to the, to the, the hotel and Charlie wouldn't have it. So we took a hack and there we were at the Parkview Hotel. Well, now, there was nothing park or view about it. <laughs> we had a little small room and, and a dirty window overlooking a grimy, filthy alley, and Charlie wanted to come home immediately. I wondered if he'd even give New York a chance. We looked up his friends, uh, John Marchand, Will Crawford. They said, oh, come to our studio. We met Ed Boreen that summer. Well, it was winter, I guess. We were there. Charlie modeled his first bronze that we had cast, smoking up. It's a cowboy on the back of a rearing horse, and he's firing his six-shooter into the air, and his mouth is open with a cry of jubilation. And Charlie felt a little more comfortable having found these kindred spirits whose studios were filled with the same sorts of collections that he had back in Montana. And what was I doing? I was walking the streets of New York with paintings under my arms, from gallery to publisher to gallery to publisher. A young woman alone in the streets of New York in 1904? I learned about a lot more than the art business, but I did learn about it. And it truly is a business. It is not left to chance, as some people suppose. I knew that that we had to think with a strategy in mind. How to position Charlie so his work would get recognized. How to put him in front of the right people so that, so that he would get some of those contracts that could advance his career. When we left New York that first time, I had sold one painting and I had several commitments from Scribner's and Leslie's and Outdoor Magazine to use Charlie's work. And uh, every time we went back to New York, Charlie drug his feet as much as he could, but I loved it. And I got better and better at negotiating and asking for the right prices. <sighs> Joe DeYoung said that no matter what kind of gloves Nancy's wearing, velvet, suede, or leather, they contain a pair of brass knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> we met Phil Goodwin that year in New York, and. Oh, Phil and Charlie just, they had such a, a camaraderie between them and no two people could have been further apart in the way they looked at the world. Charlie uh, never sat still for more than three days of art classes and then threw his hands up and said he couldn't learn anything from the teachers. 
Phil Goodwin was formally trained by Howard Pyle, and in those days, your training was everything. A serious young man, oh my. They were so different, but at heart, they were such the same. We convinced Phil to come to Montana for a, a trip one time, and we took him up to Bullhead Lodge. I was so worried. It rained the whole time. I thought surely his trip would be ruined. But there they sat in front of the open door of that cabin now, Phil and Charlie. The door was open. It was raining outside. And Charlie would pull out that omnipresent little piece of wax that was always in his pocket and he would show Phil how he used those models to see how the light would, would work off of a certain figure. And he told Phil he ought to have more predicaments in his painting. Not just a moose standing by a stream, but a wounded moose being chased by a grizzly bear. <laughs> and Phil would say, Charlie, you ought to use more color in your work. And he showed him a little bit about mixing those colors. Oh, I puttered around there in the cabin, just listening to the two of them. It was almost a magical time there. As, as uh, the years went on, Charlie and Phil grew farther and farther apart in the way they looked at the world. Phil got a lot of contracts from Remington and Winchester for ammunition and firearms and such. And as time went on, Charlie became more and more critical of hunting. <sighs> But he always saw the best in people. He always saw the best. And to this day, why, Charlie's been gone nine years now. And Phil, until this year, always corresponded with me. Charlie could always see the best in people. I tried to be more like him. But people never took to me the way they took to Charlie. I remember one time the maids and matrons of Great Falls were having a fundraising event. Now, those ladies never really accepted me. Perhaps my humble beginnings did just never, I could never overcome them. But as Charlie became more and more famous, having Mrs. Charles M. Russell chair your event was quite a feather in your cap. <laughs> and I never took those jobs just to get my name on the program. I worked like 60 every single time I was asked to help support any sort of an effort. And this particular fundraiser, we were putting on an opera to raise money for the war effort, 1916 it was. And uh, um, I, Charlie wasn't very happy with me. I had the printer stamp out some cardboard figurines, this opera, Little Almond Eyes. And, uh, he had to ink in all the faces on those figurines. <laughs> Seems to me we had a, a group of people working on it, but he was one of them. And uh, well, the fundraiser was very successful. Oh, they raised more money than they thought they ever could. And after the money had been dispersed, and then some, I took what was left over and I bought food and, and blankets for the Cree Indians, those starving people who had really no home at all across the river there in Great Falls. And when those maids and matrons of Great Falls found out what I did with that money, they said they never would have worked so hard if they knew I was going to put that money towards helping those dirty Indians. I was so angry when I heard that. I could hardly contain myself. When I told Charlie about that, well, he wasn't a 
happy about it, but he said, Nancy, calm down. Those ladies have probably never, ever really been hungry. And they have no idea what it's like to live in a tent in the wintertime. You've got to try and understand the other person's side. Maybe that's how Charlie forgave me some of my faults. That my experience and what I'd been through in my life had given me my particular temperament. And I do have a temper. When it flares, Charlie always gave me a wide berth. Said I'd never really learned to control it. I struggled so with that quality in myself. Afraid that I wouldn't live up to his expectations as his wife or his friend or his partner. The trails are not always easy. But love and understanding make the toughest trails smoother and we had that for each other. All our years together, love and understanding. 1911 was such a big year for us. It was our very first exhibit in New York and it was called The West That Has Passed. And in the New York Times there was a two-page interview with Western artist Charles M. Russell, illustrated, and a reviewer wrote that Charlie Russell has a big heart and he paints it across the canvas such that the viewer can smell the incense of the prairie. And in that very article, he was compared to Frederick Remington. Frederick Remington had been gone for two years at that point. We had arrived. And it came so fast after that. Montana had a new state house. And the House of Representatives wanted a mural for their chambers. And, and so they put Charlie Russell to work on it. 25 by 12 was that canvas. We had to raise the roof on the studio in order to accommodate it. And Charlie wrote, half kidding, I think, but maybe half serious, to his friends in New York, what am I supposed to do with this canvas? And they wrote back, I know Ed Boreen wrote back, Charlie, get yourself a ladder and start painting, he said. <laughs> and when it was finally finished and hung, oh, I'm so proud of it. There it is for everyone to see for, forever. So much of Charlie's work will end up in private hands, and not everyone will see it, but that piece, that is a monument to his genius. And, and another piece I love so well, a commission for the Montana Club in Helena. When the land belonged to God, he called it, it's a, a picture of what he loved best, the natural world. It's a herd of buffalo coming up out of a river, and right up in front of the viewer, there's a buffalo bull looking right at the viewer and all those drops of water coming off those big shaggy bodies and the sun reflecting in each one of them. And perhaps I like it so much because I know it took a piece of Charlie's soul to get that buffalo bull right. One day it was pointing this way and the next day it was pointing that way and he'd <laughs> scrape it off and try again. But he got it just right in the end. He got it just right. Well, there we were, married nearly 25 years, 
People would call Charlie Russell a genius. He'd say, I'm just a cowboy with a paintbrush. I do the painting and Nancy does the business, so what she says goes. And, well, I could take care of the business, everything about it, to keep Charlie from having to worry. And I could endure the way he thought I charged too much for his work, but I could not be with him in his own particular world. Charlie had a place inside him where he went, where his memories were kept, where he, where he drew on all of that life that was passing that he wanted to express. Sometimes he'd sit in the parlor in the evening with a pad and a pencil and just work out an idea, not saying anything, quite content to be there in that world all by himself. I could not join him in his particular world. Well, now, 1920, we finally went to California. Will Rogers had been after us for years. You've got to come and see this new suburb of Los Angeles called Hollywood. And didn't Charlie love being on those movie sets? And Will making those pictures and, and in the evenings we were invited to the parties and the salons. And that's where I sold Salute to the Rogue Trade for $10,000, the highest price ever paid to a living artist. Will Rogers put it this way one time. He said, Nancy took an O out of saloon and turned it into salon. <laughs> Well, a couple of years later, was 26, I guess, we had so many things going on, so much we were juggling, and Charlie didn't feel very good that year, that summer. He, we started the, the studio, uh, next to the studio we were putting a gallery on, addition, so that there would be a place for Charlie to show his work when people came to visit, and started our home in California. Montana winters were just getting to be too much for us. Charlie had goiter for years. Now that's not such a serious thing, but when you let it go and let it go, he, he hated anything that had to do with change and he didn't like doctors. So finally that summer we went to the Mayo Clinic where they were doing remarkable things with the surgery to correct such a problem. And indeed the surgery for correcting the goiter was, was successful. The doctors took me aside and said that Charlie's heart was damaged over the years of the choices that he made and he didn't have very long. And I told them not to tell him and, and they did tell him and he told them not to tell me. <laughs> so we both left there thinking we knew something that the other person didn't. <laughs> oh, I wish we could go back. Oh, I wish we could go back to that summer and have some more time. I remember friends of his would come visit him that summer. One in particular, they were sitting out on the porch and this friend said, Charlie, do you ever get out riding anymore? No. No, he said, I throwed my last leg over a horse. He sounded so resigned that had been his life since he was big enough to crawl up on a horse. But if there is a heaven, and I believe there is. Charlie throws his leg over a horse every day and rides as 
far and as long as he wants across prairies that never end and sits around campfires that never burn out telling stories. The West was not just a place for Charlie Russell. It was a place in time. And where he is, time will never change the West that he loved. Charlie died in October 26. I didn't have much time to, to really think about that too much. Now we had Trails Plowed Under, a collection of Charlie's stories, all ready to go to publication. And, uh, well, I was arguing with the publishers. They wanted Owen Wister to write the introduction. Well, Owen Wister might be an author, but he doesn't know Charlie Russell. I want Will Rogers to write the introduction, and I was right, and they gave in, and they agreed. Will Rogers wrote the introduction to that book as if he was writing a letter to Charlie. Old-timer, he said, you don't know how much we miss you. We're just hanging on here as long as we can. We don't know why. We know it's better where you are. Perhaps it's because we haven't done anything that will live after we are gone. What Charlie did lives and will live for a very long time. People give me credit for making Charlie Russell famous and wealthy. I have done nothing noteworthy but love and support the only Charlie Russell in the world and believe in a talent and a genius that he took for granted. Charlie is immortal, I should say, and I played my part trotting in double harness to keep him from quitting the bunch. <laughs> We're all Charlie's bunch. Then and now and in the future, I just kept him from wandering off. Well, now, it's your own fault for giving me an opportunity to talk, and I could talk for a whole lot longer. Do we have an opportunity to spend a little time if a person had a question? Well, does anyone have a question for me about this story? I'd be more than happy to answer it. One thing about Montana that never changes is how dry it is. <laughs> How long did Nancy live beyond Charlie? Uh, do I look that bad? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're immortal too. Well, I'm not dead yet. But when I do die, I, I guess we all think about how we'd like to be remembered. I would like to be remembered for, well, what I just said, trotting in double harness with a man who, who took so much for granted in this life, maybe took me for granted, I don't know, but I was more than happy to play my part so that the future would have this remarkable legacy that Charlie was able to create. You just hang on to that question. Yes? Could you talk a little bit about your son? Oh, our son Jack. Uh, question is about our son, Jack. In 1916, we adopted a little boy. It was just a baby. Um, Charlie loved children so much, and he just doted on that little boy. We were fortunate to have uh, neighbors, good neighbors, and Joe DeYoung came to stay with us at that time. Joe is an artist and probably one of the 
closest to Charlie in terms of Charlie helping to mentor him, as they call it these days, into the future. And he helped a lot when we traveled with little Jack. Now, Jack's grown now. <coughs> we don't always see eye to eye. I don't know if you have children, but that's a circumstance that often occurs. Yes, any other questions? I thought, yes. Where did you bury Charlie? Where did we bury Charlie? Up on a beautiful hill overlooking the prairies there in Great Falls. Yes. He can see as far as he wants. And the sunrises and sunsets are quite apparent from that spot. Well, uh, what I, what, is there some, would you like to say something here for a very quick minute? I know that Mr. Wittenberg will help you make a transition with me. Thank you so very much.